Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. I got to say, I am quite curious to hear what you guys will think about this episode. Some of you, I think, will respond with something like, duh, of course you can seek Christ through Buddhist meditation. Others, I think, understandably, are going to be very suspect of opening oneself up spiritually in a non-Christian context. But either way, it should be interesting. Uh, Stay tuned at the end of the episode. I'll be continuing uh, this new segment of answering a question from one of our patrons. And this week's question is from Tom. He asks, can you describe the actual claims of Christian universalism and what reasoning and or scripture people use to get to that viewpoint? I'll do my best, Tom. But first, our guest today, Mark Vernon. Mark's studies began with a degree in physics before two degrees in theology followed by a PhD in philosophy, and he's now a psychotherapist, an author, and a speaker, and he lives in London. We had a concise, but I think pretty wide-ranging conversation, although we focused around his regular experience now, as a Christian, of Buddhist meditation meetings, and how he thinks about interactions between Christians and other faiths. One term I should define before we begin that does not get defined in our conversation is pantheism. Pantheism is the view held in many Eastern modes of thought, but not all, wherein God just is 
or equals the universe. For the pantheist, there is no God outside any of the actual universe. They are simply one in the same. You could contrast this with panentheism, which we heard about from Phil Clayton a month or so ago. That's a lot more compatible with Christianity because for panentheists, the entire universe is within the divine. That is, the physical universe is not in any way separate from God, but God is also more than the universe, such that we would want to worship God, thank God, etc. So if the universe just is God, then I'm God and you're God and this desk is God and this microphone is God. And who exactly is there to thank, worship, pray to, to have any kind of a relationship with? So panentheism gets around that. Um, so that's pantheism and panentheism. Into my chat now with Mark Vernon. Mark, how would you describe your faith upbringing? Um, I was brought up in a Church of England household. My father was a clergyman. You know, we went to church. I went to a Church of England school. So it was all around me. And how would you describe your Christian faith today? Questing, I suppose. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do go to church on occasion. At the moment, I've got quite a thing about certainly the liturgies which are used in the Anglican church, which is where I go if I go to church, and how I think they're set up to kind of offer you a, a religious experience, if you like, that's very much mediated by the church. And in recent years, I've got much more interested in what it is to have a sort of direct spiritual experience of the divine, of God. And so at the moment, the more mediated appeal of the church has sort of fallen away for me. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm not really going to church so much. Yeah, that's interesting. So what we're going to get to here is that you go to the Buddhist Society of London. But when I was emailing with you earlier, you described that as one of the things you're doing there is it is actually part of your pursuit of the Christian God. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, at one level, going to the Buddhist society is simply that it's a place where they know how to hold silence. Hmm. They know how to do silence. And that is very hard to find in the Christian context. So that in Buddhism, whilst, you know, the Buddhist society is kind of Buddhism light where I go, there's something about that, you know, for many, many years there, it's, it's, I think it's the oldest Buddhist place in London, they've been having regular silence and there's, you know, it's almost in the room. Um, so it's very powerful uh, and a very good place to go if, si if real silence is what you're after. I think that not everybody listening is going to have this worry, but we should address it early on. I think some people would either think or have been brought up to think that going and opening oneself up, I'm using air quotes here, in a non-Christian context is is really inviting trouble. It's inviting, they might say, the wrong kind of spirit into the room. Obviously, you don't see it that way, and we don't have time for a whole theology of the supernatural here, but just can you respond to that briefly? Yeah, I mean, I understand the concern intellectually, but at a felt level, it just doesn't work like that. That I mean, I guess a neat way of putting it would be that if you're a monotheist, and you know, I, my theism is definitely monotheistic, then opening yourself up to any place of sort of goodwill spiritually is going to lead to the one God. You know, how could it be otherwise? This God is everywhere. I guess it's quite pragmatic. It's a question of what channel suits when you're seeking to know that God. And again, I understand that many, many Christians would feel you can only know God through Jesus. 
But for me, Jesus opened a way and it's really up for us to work out our own salvation, to use a Pauline expression. And at the end of the day, you know, whether or not you're saying you're taking on the mind of Christ or you're finding the divine in silence, or even if you're taking refuge in the Buddha, which is the traditional Buddhist expression, they're just terms of reference, really. And in the silence, they ultimately fall away. Hmm. Are there any biblical stories or verses or parables that actually line up in your mind with this motivation to to seek God in these in these different spaces? How does the Bible play into this for you? Yeah, well, take the parables. I think that parables are routinely misunderstood. And the reason why they're routinely misunderstood is because they're, they tend to be reduced to moral tales. And to my mind, this completely misunderstands, actually not just the parables that Jesus, but Jesus' teaching method. I actually don't think Jesus was really much concerned for moral behavior. And what he was really concerned about was kind of shocking us into seeing the world in a completely different way. And that's why some of the parables actually seem quite immoral. You know, the, the people that get paid the same amount, even if they've only been working for an hour of the day, or the servant who buries his talent gets punished. You know, Matthew gets sent to the place where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know, these, these are not moral tales. Mm. What they're trying to do is break us free of that kind of worldview in a way, in order the kingdom may be known by us, that something completely different might come in, the camel on the eye of the needle. You know, these are kind of rationalized by people. But I think the whole point was a bit like the Buddhist koan that, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping? And they function like that. They take you to the edge of what you know in order that divine knowledge may then creep up on you. It's only until you are able to reach that point, I think, that you're able to understand what the kingdom of God is like a thief in the night. I mean, what a weird thing to say if that was a moral tale, like a thief in the night. Um, it's not, but it's not a moral tale at all. It's about something that's beyond what you know now, that when it breaks through, it completely remakes life for you. What does it look like? What does it sound like? What does it smell like in these services? Of the Buddhist society? Yeah. Yeah, it's very minimal. Uh, it's essentially, I go to lunchtime sitting sessions and uh, you walk in, some people bow to the statue of the Buddha, you sit down on your cushion or on your chair. There's someone who gongs the gong to begin the 40 minutes. They may say hello, and then they gong the gong at the end of the 40 minutes, and you get up and leave in silence. So they're very, very minimal on the outside, but holding that silence is actually quite a subtle thing. And the person who gongs the gong is actually doing a lot more than just, you know, calling time. They're creating the right kind of sense in the room and holding that sense for others. And then when you join that, you can support it as well. Are you praying? Would you call it praying? Are you thinking? Are you doing basic mindfulness and just trying to empty your brain? Like, what's going on? I mean, I did a lot of mindfulness trainings. And the idea is uh, at one level to watch what's going on in your mind in order that you can disidentify from just the routine hubbub of the everyday. And with that disidentification, a kind of space opens up around the thoughts of your mind that carry on for the most part. But you become aware of a kind of space. And then it's into that space that what's more than you can start to show itself. So it's, it, it is prayer, but it's not intercessory prayer. It's not petitionary prayer. It's actually an old form of Christian prayer. I think it was the prayer of the desert mothers and fathers. I don't know if you know the expression navel-gazing. 
but I once found out that this expression navel gazing was actually first used against the desert mothers and fathers of the third and fourth century. Like a pejorative. Um, it, what are you doing going into the desert navel gazing all day long? So, you know, this is a very old tradition in Christianity that I think just got lost at the Reformation. I mean, that's a whole other story. But broadly speaking, certainly again in the UK, the houses where this kind of meditation took place were ripped out in about 10 years. And Christianity has floundered around with it ever since, which I think is why, you know, the Buddhists have a kind of appeal in a way they've realized there's a bit of a vacuum there. And they provide these techniques and, and so on to help you get into the silence properly. And, you know, these are very complex traditions, both Buddhism and Christianity. But, but broadly speaking, particularly the more minimal Buddhist traditions, so the Theravadan Buddhist traditions, I see them as more a kind of negative way. So the idea is that you move towards that which you don't know, that which is called empty. I think it's empty because it's emptied of familiar concepts, familiar ways of understanding. And in that emptying, there's a fullness discovered beyond uh, what the concepts otherwise could contain. But it's broadly speaking a sort of negative way towards what is silent, unknown, um, empty. It would be called the apophatic way in the Christian tradition. Whereas I think in, a, in an overtly theistic tradition, such as Christianity, the cataphatic, the more positive way, always dominates. But still there's this sense of we are moving or becoming aware of a God within that can be captured with a few images, um, is a felt presence. I mean, a, a felt sense that I that speaks to me a lot is a bit like um, at sunrise, just when the sun's below the horizon, you know it's about to appear and you can see the sky lighting up. But you never, as it were, you're permanently that moment just before the sun rises in this life, at least. And so it's more cataphatic in the sense that, you know, the sun is rising, but you still, as it were, can't see the sun. Maybe just to add that actually the apophatic can sound strange, but it's actually all around regular Christian language. So if you say God is immortal, which many Christians would do, what you're saying is whatever God might be, we know God's not mortal. What immortality is, you know, we don't really know. Or if God's invisible, you know, whatever God might be, God's not visible. So the apophatic uh, is actually all around the minute you think about it. Let's spend a little bit more time on this activity that you have at the Buddhist Society. So to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, can you describe for us experiences that you, you've had or that you regularly have? Like what actually goes on when you go through with this 40 minutes of silence? I mean, sometimes it's just a pause and sometimes it's a pause that never quite pauses. <laughs> My mind just keeps turning over and I never quite put one to one side the business of the day or whatever might be troubling me. But at other times, there is a sense of your mind slowing down. And that's quite interesting in itself. Uh, sometimes you even have the sense that a thought can be sort of moved or held in front of you and you can kind of investigate the thought for its own sake, you know, so it may be a feeling of discomfort about something that happened earlier, but you can kind of hold it fairly steady and, as it were, look into it and get a sense of what might lie through on the, on the other side of that feeling. So, you know, rather than just having the sense itself, you start to see through the sense. And that often means that the immediate sense kind of dissolves and something else appears that tells you something a bit deeper about yourself. And then at other times, there's a is a way you go to the edge of your own awareness. It's a bit like sort of standing on a cliff edge or something and seeing that something is coming up over the horizon, that something that you feel is not actually your 
sense. Um, it doesn't, as it were, originate in your own small mind, but is nonetheless has a is there, has a kind of vitality, has a presence. It can relate to you. You can relate to it. So that tends to happen more for me anyway when I go on longer retreats and after two or three days perhaps of, of sitting that awareness of a kind of inner vitality of, of the world around one as well as your own inner vitality becomes more present rather than the kind of you know the kind of popping in for a lunchtime 40 minutes but nonetheless that kind of sense of life beyond your own life known directly it happens that direct experience of whatever god is whatever is out there how has that or has that completely changed your approach to christianity it's become the key practice for me in Christianity. As it were, I could almost, you know, drop everything else apart from silence. Um, that's that's not really true in practice. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, you know what I mean? It's the kind of priority. Some people would say that, you know, the Eucharist is their primary practice. Other people would say that biblical study is their primary practice. The silence is my primary practice, and then it informs these other things. And I mean, to put it the other way around, I get intolerance when I feel that there's not much awareness of silence in, say, a liturgy. Sometimes you can have a liturgy that's actually full of silence, even whilst the liturgy is going on. It's conducted, as it were, from that silent place. And that then is tremendous. And chanting and, and so on is very, very good at doing that. But also you can go to even liturgical services like they have in the Church of England and, and feel that no one conducting the service really knows anything about silence. It's all about performing the rites. It's all about the moral message of the rites, you know, so a sort of social gospel approach. And they're not bad things in themselves, but for me, when they're not coming out of the place of silence, they lose their moorings and they don't sort of tap the wellspring. Yeah, I've experienced liturgical services that were sort of hemmed in and buffered by silences throughout. And I've experienced that in some Catholic churches and I've experienced that at monasteries and almost nowhere else. But it, you totally notice it. It might be 15 seconds of silence here and there in between key moments, but that totally affects the mindset of a person in the service and sort of is an invitation to slow down. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And it's just, again, it's, it can sound a bit mysterious, but, you know, it's the same in music. There's a certain kind of music that actually is holding a silence and you know it. It's a more meditative kind of music. And although there is noise, the noise is actually framing that which lies beyond the noise. And I think it's exactly the same in, in, in liturgical services. Now, I want to use this experience you're talking about as a way to now get into a conversation about other faiths. So you beautifully described what sometimes happens. It happens more often on longer retreats, but it happens sometimes on these lunchtime breaks. Now, it seems like we have to take seriously the claims of people in other religious traditions that they have had very similar experiences. You might read a Christian mystic and a Sufi mystic, and you might go, my experience sounds 50% like this one, 50% like this one. Once you start reading these accounts, the experience, there doesn't seem to be much difference. Is that your read on it, first of all? Yeah, broadly speaking, I mean, I think there's been two approaches to the more inclusive attempts to describe, you know, interfaith connections. And one is as often associated with what's called the perennial philosophy, where people look at statements made in different faith traditions. And, you know, they might say that compassion or love 
you know, lies behind all the statements and so kind of find commonalities like that. Um, an approach that actually appeals to me is slightly different from that because it's more about this participation in a tradition and it's at the level of the participation that the commonality really comes through. Even the statements may sound really very, very different, but in a particular context, in a particular culture, it turns out that in terms of what they're pointing towards, what they're inviting you into, the participation then comes together. So, you know, one tradition could even say it's atheistic, another can say it's theistic, and yet the participation, you realize that they're actually pointing towards the same, you know, ineffable God, to use the, the more theistic expression there. So if we're going to have this kind of open posture, I, w- I want to go through some of the common worries that a Christian will have when, when, when they start to consider this. The first one is, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I think Jesus there was speaking as the Logos, as the creative principle that runs through all creation. He could easily have said, no tree grows except it grows through me. Hmm. Um, He could easily have said, no sun shines unless it shines with my divine light. Uh, He is a particular man in a particular time and place, but he's speaking as a universal sustainer and creator of all things, which is in us too, incidentally. I think that the point about the incarnation isn't so much that it happened about 2,000 years ago in one particular figure, but that it's happening all the time, potentially in us. And for me, the gospel is about becoming more and more aware and living more and more out of that, because the Logos is in us too. How could it be otherwise? And yet, my own kind of internal pushback is that the specificity of the incarnation into a single human being willing to suffer like a human being, there's something about that that tells me something about God that does line up with my experience, as opposed to a kind of, I don't want to call it bland because that's poisoning the well, but it isn't just that like, hey, there's this world, everyone's got the divine spark in them, which I I don't disagree with that, by the way. But the people call it the scandal of the particular in Christian theology That God's like, no, I'll really get down in the muck. Like, I really will actually do it. I don't know. How does that hit you? Yeah, but again, for a monotheist, I mean, how could God not be down in the muck already? I think that that's always been the case. You know, God is that which sustains all things. And if God wasn't there, then they would fall out of existence. You know, this is, again, a pretty sort of standard medieval theological idea. Right. If you read Dante's Divine Comedy... Hell and the bottom of hell is the place where God almost isn't, but not quite. You know, hell is frozen. In terms of the particularity issue, it's again a a fairly general spiritual truth that the more particular something is, the more universal it becomes. Hmm. You know this in the arts. If someone tries to write a universal story, it's sort of rather, it lacks appeal and it feels like it's watered down or not very compelling. Whereas the more particular a story is, the more you go, my goodness, that is channeling something timeless. And that's a, a sort of paradox in terms of science, but as a spiritual truth, it's, it's self-evident. You know, the, the people who are really the spiritual greats are those who are real characters, real individuals, and yet somehow you know that they've become transparent to that which is more than them. And it's the more particular they, they become that the more transparent they become as well. And so Jesus is that too. I've heard people describe 
kind of two kinds of atonement theory, the the way that Christ's death and resurrection pays for sin, there's broadly two camps that one is a it accomplishes a deed. It does in that in these words and it's ontological. It's an actual event that does something. And the other camp is more no, the atonement reveals something that was true about God already. We might do the same thing for the incarnation. We might say well, the incarnation of Christ accomplishes something that the moment that Christ's born, the universe reverberates in some way and everything's different from that point on. Or to tip my hand here, especially if we think that 13 billion years had gone by before it happened and who knows how many after. No, that's not what the incarnation does. What the incarnation does is show us what God is like. And it happens at a time and place when it's appropriate for that to happen such that we can see it truly. I imagine you'd be more in the second camp on the incarnation, but what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, that'd be right. Maybe to add a kind of another element in there, which is I've been very persuaded that human consciousness evolves, not in the Darwinian sense, um, as it were, coming out of our non-human ancestors, but that in cultural time, our experience of what it is to be human evolves too. And I discovered this when I did my PhD, which was on Plato. And uh, I think that the reason why Plato is so significant for us is because he was grappling with a new experience of what it is to be human that is still our own. If you know, if you read a bit of Homer, 500 years or so before Plato, you realize you're in a very, very different world. But it's a militaristic culture on one level. But more importantly, it's a world where what's me and what's not me, what's inside and what's outside, what's divine and what's mortal. It's completely blurred. You know, a god is as a light to appear, as a, as a hero is as light to appear, as a regular mortal is likely to appear. That starts to change. And Plato is one of the first people kind of onto it. And I think that the reason why Jesus is so significant in the West is that his life completely instantiated this new consciousness where what was inside and what was outside could be separated but also then seen to mirror each other so you could have an individual who could know themselves to be fully transparent to the divine i think for the first time i think that someone like socrates had a powerful sense of what was immortal in his life but he himself didn't identify with the divine that took, as it were, another two or three hundred years of the development of human awareness. So you get to the person of Jesus who, for the first time, identifies and, and shows, lives this sense of what it is to know within your own I amness, you might say, the divine I am. You quoted John's I am the way, the truth and the life. And, you know, John has several I am statements in his gospel. I think this is very much what he's reflecting on. And that's now possible for us all. This is what it is to live in the Christian period, not to relate to the divine pantheistically, as, say, was done in the time of Homer. And even, I think, in the early parts of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, it's pretty clear if you read Two Kings that Solomon's temple had a whole range of altars to all sorts of other gods. And that's the way it was, I think, in the early Hebrew period. A sense of monotheistic possibility starts to unfold And again, I think, completely crystallizes um, at the time of Jesus. For the second of the two patron-only episodes this month in April, I spoke with William Lloyd, 
William is a listener of the show and himself a patron. And when he emailed me and we started chatting, I found so much about his story and his current work interesting that I wanted to interview him. What is especially interesting to me is the fact that he works with a program that uses the Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step type structure combined with Christian theology and biblical teaching. And I have long thought that there was something really unique about the 12-step process and the kind of open God-slash-higher-power language that's used, this lack of judgment baked into the very structure of the meetings, all that stuff. So we chatted about that and about his own story of heartbreak and recovery, of deconstruction and reconstruction. Here are some clips of my conversation with William. You mean to tell me that Adam, Adam just totally upended the human race and put us in this this hole and destroyed the human race and Jesus could only undo a little bit of that. Jesus could only get a few. I, I was like, you know, shit, Adam is so much more powerful than Jesus, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. And it, you know? And yeah. like the answer kind of was kind of flat. You know, a lot of the addicts, they, you know, some of them, I mean, it, it, it hits everybody. But a lot of them, it, it was the, the legalism um, that really killed them and really drove them away. And my marriage and the counselor told me that you're in, a, you're in an abusive relationship. And I kind of said, that, that can't happen. I'm a man. Yeah. Women can't be abusive to a man. <laughs> you yeah, know, all yeah, that yeah. stuff. And uh, so I was just um, very um, dysfunctional. I was codependent. Um, I was I was definitely sexually dysfunctional, you know, as far as just feeling guilty about my desires and, and having an unwilling partner. And he said, make a chart, your resentment, who you're resenting, why your part in it and God's view. So I said, I said, you know, Billy, his name was Billy. I said, you know, I said, I, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I'm a nice guy. You know, I don't hate anybody. You know, I, well, d- skip that part. <laughs> <laughs> he says, he says, you know, he says, uh, no, he goes, I'll fire you. That's a term that they use in AA. That if hmm. you don't go along and, and really kind of listen to the wisdom of your sponsor, you're fired. You know, I love you, but I'm, I'm not your sponsor. <laughs> he goes, I'll fire you. I said, I don't. He goes, listen, he goes, ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and lead you and do it. And I'll be honest, Dan, five pages later of listing and working out my resentments, blew me away and i brought it to him and and step five is that you you know you confess the exact nature of your wrongs i read the list to him and i felt such a weight come off my shoulders i did not realize all the things that i had stuffed and all the uh, the emotions so if that sounded interesting to you uh and or to be a part of the group that submits questions for guests questions that i answer on the episodes or to be a part of the Facebook group, become a patron. It starts at five bucks a month, patreon.com slash dancoke, or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. Now back to our main interview, where Mark was talking about how monotheism really crystallizes by the time of Jesus. Sometimes I can hear this kind of language, new, more evolved forms of consciousness, and it gets a bit jargony there's a part of me that relates it to like frou-frou new agey stuff from the 90s 
but at the same time, it doesn't sound like you're not saying something like that, not not something so vacuous as that. But there is a worry about sort of presentism, you know, or or like kind of a chronological snobbery there. How do you respond to to those kind of worries? Yeah, I understand the concern. The quick answer is that I think it's cyclical, that any particular phase has its kind of upsides and downsides. And our upside, if you like, is that we can know ourselves to be individuals with an inner life that feels our own and that we can know that we have a relationship to the divine that sort of feels our own, even if it's in the context of communities and traditions as well. The downside is that we live a very alienated life compared right. to our forebears. You know, we have all sorts of problems of meaning. And, you know, this is very serious. It could be the case that we're about to completely ruin the planet as a result of this. In some ways, we're far less evolved. And I think that our challenge now, in a way, which is captured in the Christian story, too, is to almost like return, to be involved in the returning of creation to God. I think, you know, perhaps in, in an earlier period, people knew themselves to be participating fully in the flow of the divine our task um, our particular part of these cycles um, is to know ourselves consciously um, as ourselves but also as open to god and then uh, knowing god in all things as well it's a particular moment rather than progressive i'd say yeah that's a that's an interesting alternative way to think of it an alternative to uh, the march of progress i guess you talked about the experience that Jesus had, and you talked about how his experience is unique. First fruits comes to mind, Paul's phrase, you know, Jesus is the first one to kind of do this. This is a topic in New Testament that gets really minimized in the Protestant tradition, but not so much in the Orthodox and in some other areas. This idea of theosis, the idea that deification is straight up what the Orthodox call it in in English. And and it's in Paul. I mean, it's it's in there a bunch that like God will make us or is making us like God. Why do you think that is so minimized? What do we gain by recovering that kind of language? How do we end up not turning that into works righteousness or like, you know, well, I, I can be just like God or, you know, that kind of a prideful mentality. I think that you see Paul working out his salvation in his letters, and sometimes he's much more inclined to the, the side of the Christian tradition, which says that, as it were, Jesus has done it for us, and our task is to submit to the work of Christ in that way. But I think what you see in Paul is gradually he realizes that he must live his own crucifixion, and he must live his own life, and as it were, rather than leaning on the crucifixion of Jesus, he must uh, follow his own dying every day. And then that's when he really discovers that he's taking on the mind of Christ, that it's no longer him that lives, but God who lives within him. That's when I think he, as it were, at least has moments, if not extended periods, where he overcomes his tremendous struggles and then can make these great claims like there's no Jew or Greek, a male or female, and so on. Yeah, um, interesting. Sees the, he sees the full vision then. And then the second part would be that what this requires, this theosis requires, is dying. You know, it's, it's nothing less. And again, this is pretty standard that in all spiritual traditions, pride is the constant thing that haunts you. Because as well, just when you feel you've got something, pride pops its head up and says, you think you've got it. 
And then you have to go through another sort of cycle of letting that go of, of the dying. Again, in Dante's Divine Comedy, it's why when they go into purgatory, the first people they meet are the proud to bow down carrying great rocks. And they know they've got to like kind of let go of the rocks, but it's going to take some quite some time. That's the sort of twist, if you like, that this life that's God's life, the divine life within is found by letting go. But it's complicated because it's not just, as it were, smashing the ego. Um, it's not just denying yourself in a kind of masochistic way, as if the more that you punish yourself almost, the closer you get to God. That, that's, that's just pride inverted, I think. Because at the same time, we are called to become more and more fully ourselves. I see it slightly in psychoanalytic terms. I mean, I work as a psychotherapist, and I think there are some models within psychotherapy that are quite helpful here. That in psychotherapy, we've understood that the conscious part of ourselves, the ego, if you like, um, is just the tip of the iceberg, is just one part of ourselves. And part of the task in psychotherapy can be to realign oneself with what is known as the unconscious, which, you know, if you're theistically inclined, you, you would say is that as a part of you that opens up ultimately onto the divine and that realigning so that you live more and more out of that aspect of being rather than the narrow ego aspect of being is part of the task of psychotherapy. And so that really does feel like dying because it is about moving into a domain of existence that you don't fully understand, you don't fully know, that does have things that you never quite get. And yet at the same time, it feels like life in all its fullness. You realize you're tapping a kind of infinite well that never stops giving. It's neither I've got it, nor is it I'm going to bash myself until I get it. It's a more like a spiral or a cycle or a constant process of, of realignment. Yeah, man, that's awesome. I want to tie that together with this context of other faiths. So if that's the thing we're after, ultimately, as Christians, and then in the context of thinking about other religions, the question of evangelism comes up. It sounds like you have a very robust notion of what Christ has to offer us. In no way could I accuse you of robbing the gospel of its power. It sounds like it's very powerful. And yet I get the feeling that you're not going to be the kind of guy who says, let's roll in to any country with any religious tradition and just make sure they get the Bible and let's make sure that they become Christians. So how do you think about all of that stuff? I mean, broadly speaking show them God and use words if you must. The most powerful way of spreading this, this sense of life is by living it, which then becomes its own power, its own appeal, its own attraction. You know, it's, it's beautiful. It's like beauty is the promise of happiness, one philosopher said, and beauty draws us to, towards itself. I think that, that that's the way to do it. And evangelism, which is about getting people to utter the right statements or convincing them cognitively, it's just always going to fall short. It may be a step on the way, I guess, but it's always going to fall short. And again, I think that in the Gospels, what has come to be taken as evangelism in the sense of converting people is much misunderstood. I mean, take the Great Commission, so-called, at the end of Matthew. I, I once looked this up, actually, because I got rather irritated by it all, this, people using this expression, the Great Commission. And it turns out that um, that end of Matthew was only called the Great Commission in the time of the British Empire, when oh, it was no. interpreted of you know the world needs your civilizing process and the great commission is jesus's endorsement of that and then you do a little bit of greek and you realize that the phrase that's normally translated as all nations could equally be translated as all ethnicities and i think what this is actually saying is that 
this new dispensation is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles as well. So it's like a statement of fact rather than a command to go and do a load of stuff. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that there's no uh, biblical text which might be used to support the idea that you convert people. But I think in the round, what it might mean to spread this good news is much more about living it and then allowing God, as it were, to take the responsibility for his creation rather than the rather neurotic approaches that you see in many, you know, parts of the Christian church. It makes me think of a slightly more mainstream read of the Great Commission by the philosopher Dallas Willard, recently passed away from USC, who said, look, it doesn't say make converts, it says make disciples. And in the context of the disciples and Jesus, they lived in a rabbi and a bunch of people who live together, who learn habits. It's like apprenticeship. So it's not saying go convert everybody to Christians. It's like go make apprentices of Christ and the way of Christ. And so that wouldn't even necessarily require the the interpretive move that you're making. That's just simply saying, look, a convert's not a disciple. Those are not the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And then if you add in what I think the theologian Karl Rahner called the anonymous Christ, which is this idea that Christ is actually the logos that is running through things anyway, you know, in a way, all human beings are already trying to understand and align themselves with the logos because even if you're resisting it or confused about life or feel life is empty, that in some way is the great question of life, the orientation that all people might be striving towards. So I want to ask you about the Logos. Then I'm also going to ask you about the value of sticking with one's own tradition. But the Logos is something that you talk about. You've mentioned it here. I've heard you talk about it with Rupert Sheldrake on your guys' podcast. Jesus of Nazareth is a person. He was a historical person who lived But as Christians, we also believe that Jesus instantiated the Logos, the the blueprint of creation. This is John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through the Word all things were made. What benefit do we get from leaning in to the Logos aspect of of Christ as as we think about him? I mean, the the, the slightly cheeky answer is you get closer to the truth (laughs) by leaning into it. And I'm sure that's why John began his gospel in that way. But at the same time, you know, we are human beings. And I think our, our calling is to live a particular life. There's no such thing as a general life. But with this inflection that the more particular, the more fully yourself you become, the more transparent you become to life in all its fullness. To put it a bit more sort of challenging way to me, it, it is a risky business to turn your back or half turn your back on the Christian tradition if you're born thoroughly in a Christian culture. Hmm. Uh, because you might spend your life becoming, say, a spiritual consumer, you know, and then you don't train yourself to know God, you just turn, train yourself to become another consumer, you know, picking this way that seems the best or that way because it, it seems to deliver the results or whatever, you know, these are, these are great temptations. Certainly in my particular time and context, um, which is, you know, very much associated with the Church of England, a Church of England in crisis, existential crisis, not itself knowing what its future is, being in a kind of institutional panic, I would say that rather than being caught up in that, what I'm trying to find is is the wellspring that led to this institution anyway. And, you know, insofar as I can, try and and manifest that and know that directly in order that that then might ripple out. You you talk about a spiritual consumerism. We, We might imagine a continuum. On the one side is a complete fear of other religious expressions besides what, not just Christianity, but like my particular kind of Christianity. 
all the way on the other end, we might find a kind of shallow spirituality. And I don't remember if it was you or Rupert on one of your episodes. You told the story of somebody in India saying, Westerners come over here and they find a little pool here and then a new pool over there, a little pool of spiritual wisdom, and they, they lap up the, the shallow water from these pools and they're so excited how many more pools there are than back at home. But he said, in order to have consistent water, you have to drill a well. You have to dig down one direction for a long time. You can't survive on surface water. That seems to be a good way of sort of helping us orient between these two unhealthy poles. What do you think about that? I, I mean, it get, that, that analogy sounds a good one to me. I, I think what, what can also happen, actually, is that the spiritual traditions of a particular place find their wellspring again by their encounter with other spiritual traditions. And I think that's broadly what's going on between East and West. That in, in, in Eastern traditions, there is very much this sense that your own consciousness, your own personal development is kind of where it's at. Whereas in the West, we've got much more a kind of social form of Christianity where it's become really quite this worldly. And that has an upside because it means that people care for those who are less well off for themselves and so on, which you don't see so much in the East. But it got the downside that it, individuals find it hard to tap this kind of spiritual directness which then when they go to India or somewhere like that, they do find. Someone once said to me that if Jesus had been born and said he was God in India, they would have said, fine, you know, go to the ashram. But if he'd been born in India and said all men are equal, then he would have got into trouble. Um, Interesting. You know, whereas it's the other way around in the West. What is the value for a Christian to pick up other holy books or engage with other religious traditions? What do we have to benefit from that? Well, maybe use a very particular answer and, and perhaps picking up on what we were just saying about East and West. I, I remember being involved in a reading group where we read the Bhagavad Gita, you know, one of the standard Hindu texts. And I think I learned more about sacrifice and what sacrifice actually means day to day, moment by moment from the Bhagavad Gita than I did from my Christian upbringing. That's partly because the word sacrifice had become so sort of familiar and so had lost its edge and so on. So it's, mm. it's sort of familiarity in part but the word sacrifice in the Gita you're encouraged to practice it as a moment by moment offering of what you find yourself doing or what you find yourself thinking or your worship your thanks and so it's this constant sort of sense of engaging it yourself and then offering it to God beyond yourself and that completely revolutionized my sense of what sacrifice can mean and can become a very kind of intimate daily practice as well and then I've heard uh, Hindus say that when they've heard Christians talk about the Gita in this way, it's opened up that text for them in a way they never thought of before. They'd always assumed that the Gita was the text that preserved the, the social stratification of society. And then they realize there's a whole other side to it that can speak to them afresh in the modern world. Um, so it, it's things like that. My last question for you, and I'll ask you to put on your psychoanalysis hat here. Imagine that I am a Christian listening to this and hey, man, you sound like you know what you're talking about, but this is weird, and I just have an, an unease about it. Maybe there feels something dark about it, or I'm not sure what lies on the other side. And, you know, just imagine someone with trepidation. Psychologically, from that perspective, what, what do you say to someone like that to, to sort of calm that down and, and invite them into what you would imagine to be a, a richer Christian experience? I mean, I think you've got to feel safe 
um, in order to take risks and then to step into the unknown, you know, where we began in our conversation. So to slightly segue, the ancient skeptics, one of the ancient philosophy schools that I read about quite a lot at one point, the skeptics didn't mean they doubted everything, as the word skeptic means now. It just means searcher or, or, or inquirer, ancient skepticism. But what they argued is there's no point in just rushing off into the outer reaches of what you don't know, because then you've got nothing to really kind of discern it by, to test it by, and that you can't kind of incorporate it into yourself. You just get kind of lost. But on the other hand, to rush constantly to what you do know and what feels familiar, what feels secure and safe, you know, is, is the kind of spiritual equivalent of just wrapping yourself up in a duvet and never leaving the house. So it, the kind of art is to know, uh, to get some balance where there's one foot in what is familiar, because that is who you are at the moment. And that is the ground that you stand on. But at the same time, to have the other foot in that which is less familiar, which feels a bit risky, which is a bit of an experiment. Because then actually what happens is that your sense of self grows. You know, I, I think this is perhaps what John is, is nodding to in his gospel when Jesus says, it's good that I go because then the spirit will come that will lead you into even greater truths than these. And that is the tension is that where Jesus had become familiar to them. And yet he says, I've got to go. You know, when Jesus appears to Mary on the morning of the resurrection and says, don't touch me. I think that's what that's about as well. He's saying to her, um, now is the time for you to know the God who is my father and your father. And that is both to, as that's to sort of internalize what feels safe, but in order to be able to step into that which is more and beyond. And, you know, in the modern world, which we live in now, where channels of communication reach across cultures, it's about, I think, knowing yourself enough to move to the places that you don't know. And then you find yourself growing as a result. It strikes me that that invitation applies just as much as it applies to considering other religious traditions, it, it, it applies to the act of meditation, of, of really trying to approach God silently in one's own mind. Yeah, very much. Um, you know, this is, again, the body is a, is a great asset here, which, again, this is something that the Buddhists uh, understand, but it's hard to get proper teaching on in Christianity. But, you know, Buddhism 101 is how to sit. And that literally means, you know, where to put your bum and, you know, how to hold your back and, right. and breathing and so on, you know, and that then becomes the kind of the ground from which uh, you can look elsewhere. Mark, thank you so much for your time, man. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's, it's great to talk about these things. I appreciate your questions and, and your own curiosity there. It's great. So I hope you guys found that conversation as interesting and as helpful as I did. Uh, I have particularly found myself quoting Mark over the past weeks and maybe months about the well versus puddle analogy that he mentioned. But anyway, now to that listener question. These again are submitted by patrons on the You Have Permission Facebook group, which is patron only group. And sometimes I'll have you guys vote on which question is answered, but this week I just picked one. And again, that question is from Tom. Can you describe the actual claims of Christian universalism and what reasoning and or scripture people use to get to that viewpoint? So Christian universalism is different than, for instance, Unitarian universalism, which sometimes people get mixed up. So you'll hear, you'll hear people say things like, Universalists believe that all paths equally lead to God. 
That is what Unitarian Universalists believe, more or less, but that's not what most Christian Universalists believe. Christian Universalism is one of three basic options when we're answering the question, what happens to people who die without accepting Christ as their Savior or in some other way being saved by God's grace? Option number one, the traditional view, eternal conscious torment. This one is pretty self-explanatory. You know the drill, fire and brimstone, you know, burning forever. Option number two is called annihilationism, which is also known as conditional immortality. This view holds that immortality, surviving beyond physical death, is a gift bestowed on those whom God saves. But if you're not saved, you don't get that immortality, you don't get that gift, and you cease to exist when you die. You are, quote, burned up, you're extinguished. Now, there are a lot of biblical passages that seem to have this understanding in mind, including the lake of fire in Revelation. Uh, For more on annihilationism, I recommend the folks at Rethinking Hell. I'll put a link to their website in the show notes, in the show notes, sorry. They do a really good job on this issue and, and they have way more resources than I have. So the third option is Christian universalism. This view says that in the end, no one goes to hell nor are they annihilated, but eventually, some way or another, all people are saved by God through the work of Christ. Now, there are various understandings, as you imagine, including some thinkers who imagine what is called a post-mortem opportunity, wherein we are given another chance, so to speak, to accept Christ, uh, in theory, without all the baggage of our earthly life getting in the way. But even if you don't posit a post-mortem opportunity, this is really, this gets to one of the big arguments for universalism. And it goes like this. If any human being could see God in Christ without the blinders of their own sin, without the blinders of the sins that other people have committed against them, without the bitterness caused by their suffering, without the lies their parents told them or their societies, their bosses and their friends... Anyone given a pure, uncoerced choice of God or no God would always choose God. I'll say that again. Anybody given a pure, uncoerced choice of God or no God would always choose God. And yet we, of course, don't get that uncoerced choice while we are on earth. We see through a glass dimly, as Paul says. I think it's Paul. But the only way that God would be justified, here's where it comes in that he can't be sending people to hell on this view. The only way that God would be justified in condemning someone to hell for rejecting God is if that person had a true unconstrained choice. So we do sin, we make bad decisions, and those choices have consequences. But can it really be said that we reject what God offers us if we never truly understand what God is offering us. If someone signs a contract, but that person can be shown to have limited cognitive abilities, a judge will not hold them to the finer details of that document that they clearly can't understand. And this is what we are like while we're alive. We are always constrained by our situations, by our families, by our sufferings and our joys, our moments in history, our place geographically. 
So that kind of argument is one of the ways of getting to Christian universalism is this idea that nobody ever gets a clear shot at God while they're alive. And so God maybe could condemn someone to hell for not choosing God, but only if they really had a free choice and we don't have that kind of a choice. So maybe what appears to us to be people rejecting God is just people not understanding what it is that they're rejecting. And if God is good and if God desires the salvation of all men, as uh, it says in one of Paul's letters, then eventually he will save them because they will see God, how God is, and they will say, yes, please. Now, if we want to pull out our Bible, what we find is that on the face of it, there seem to be passages that suggest enduring torment. Uh, There's even more passages that suggest annihilation, I think. And there's also a bunch of passages that suggest universal salvation. Here are two of them, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, for as in for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And here's Colossians one: For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, in Jesus, and through Him to reconcile Himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Now, which is it? Which of the three kinds of passages is the truth? My own answer is that the Bible is multivocal on this topic. The Bible is not univocal. It presents different voices on this question. All these passages cannot be squared with each other. The various authors of these passages, in fact, probably disagreed with each other on this question, and those disagreeing viewpoints all made it into the text. So, if we can't settle it with Scripture once and for all who's saved— Uh, And what happens to those who are not saved, if indeed there is anyone that's not saved, what we need is theological arguments. And theological arguments will always carry with them some uncertainty and discernment. So, my view. In my own mind, I don't see a huge problem with annihilationism. Life is a gift. I didn't earn it. There are very few beings for which I think that God owes them some kind of afterlife because their life on earth was so bad. There's probably a few people like that. Certainly not true for me. So if there's, for most people, if there's nothing for them consciously after this life, or if there's nothing for me consciously after this life, I would not feel cheated. I don't think that God would be on the hook for some kind of injustice. Now, eternal eternal conscious torment I find completely unacceptable for a number of reasons, but mainly that there is no sense in which it can be just to punish someone eternally for a finite number of transgressions. This is where the word conscious becomes a problem. Eternal conscious torment. We have no way of understanding consciousness that does not involve time. Our conscious experience is always time bound. And so you would have this unending conscious feeling of torment. And that's where the problem lies. Could, could God maybe justly punish someone with a hundred straight years of pain? Maybe. But for infinity? No. There's no way. Now, to the common response, but you're sinning against an infinite God, end quote, I would point you to our previous episode with Bonnie Christian about atonement theories. And she shows, I think convincingly, that that particular understanding of justice made sense in the medieval world, but it does not convince anybody today. Now, my own intuition on this question is that God's love 
shown to Christians through the life and sacrifice of Christ is so big and powerful that it will win out in the end. But I don't really feel confident in any of the details because we are talking about stuff that is by definition beyond our current experience. If the Bible had one clear and unambiguous picture of what the afterlife looked like, then perhaps we could appeal to that as a way of overcoming our cognitive limitations thinking about life after this life. But as we have seen, it does not give us that. The Bible doesn't give us that. So as Christians, I think that we hope for the salvation of all. Indeed, we hope for the redemption of the entire cosmos, every human and animal life. But it is a hope. It's not something that we can prove. I think that universalism is the most likely possibility of the three answers given, but I can't say this for sure. Um, There's also a ton that I skipped over, (laughs) but I know we'll end up doing episodes on this topic more in the future. So we'll get some other voices in the mix than my own, and we'll get some more details. But thank you for your question, Tom. Appreciate that. Patrons, you can always email me with these questions or send me a message on Patreon if you prefer or you can post them on the Facebook group anytime, and I will add them to my list of patron questions. Um, and to take part in all of this by becoming a patron, again, patreon.com slash dancoke. You have permission, pod.com, click become a patron. Now, outro notes for Mark. I've got a link to his book, A Secret History of Christianity. I've got a link to rethinkinghell.com, as I mentioned. And uh, let me know if you guys like that Q&A thing. Give me some feedback. Uh, email me about anything. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Please share these episodes with people. They are meant to be resources. And let me know how that goes. See you guys next week. <laughs>